Welcome back to the Violet Ghost Train, where the sun shines, the spiders sing the prettiest song, and I steal your ice cream. Welcome. There have been some changes made. You might say we've renovated, as our intro says. Welcome back to the Violet Ghost Train, my dears. This week, I want to talk about image, media, the curse of the eye, the whole Unshian Andalou bit. Media is how we consume this reality as 21st century entities, but... As many, many, many cleverer people have already said, it also consumes us. Eat or be eaten. Well, that's rather a late period capitalist dialectic, so I prefer to think of the media Ouroboros, the serpent that eats its own tail, except this one grows and expands and gets stronger by the second rather than diminishing, and so will you, if you know how to deal with it. But... One has to stop running from the beast first before one can start to eat it back. I'm Crow Violet, and I am terribly hungry. I have a theory that the earliest forms of media were ghost stories. What did they tell each other back in no Cro-Magnon times or other? Do I sound like an anthropologist? In the caves and the dark, or the huts, or whatever it was, I don't know. What did they, stories did they tell about the hunter who never came back? But maybe something that looked like them did. Something that might have been them that did come back. And it whispered like wind at night. Are there paintings of that moment that we just haven't spotted, I wonder? The very first writing, and I think I'm writing saying back in Sumerian days, um, some of the very first writing we have, not the very first describes the lands of the dead way back when. Thinking about grief and remembrance and the possibility of something more. Words and magic, media and magic, the same thing. Words and anything we create rewrite our reality. They're haunted books and words. They're a whole library on their own. I want to think mainly about what I guess we describe as visual media. So, for example, my mind immediately goes to the Catholic statues that are said to bleed or move or even speak. One could argue that that's a media manifestation of desire. Perhaps the word of the Bible made marble flesh. We know, of course, that those statues of figures who lived and died in the Middle East, by the way, um, the Western European rewrites of a pre-colonial history, a grim form of media editing. And that held sway until the um, late 20th century, at least in the kind of European public eye, or at least certain aspects of the European public eye, I guess. That image of the Italian Jesus that overwrote history and effectively came to life. Or I'm, I'm reminded of the story of the image of the uh, Madonna at Jaffna in Sri Lanka who's said to have come to life and stepped into the arms of the priest who was afraid that he wouldn't be able to move the sculpture alone. And then, of course, we could think about haunted paintings. Now, these are actually more common in film or, you know, cinematic media of some kind than they are in what we casually refer to as real life. 
And they tend to be urban myths or modern day internet constructions, creepypasta if you like, often built around random pieces of unsettling art. But isn't that kind of the point? Art exists to enchant and provoke us. If what it provokes is a ghost story, then it's stirring something valid out of the depths of our shared mind. So go and look online, given that this is a podcast and therefore largely non-visual. So go and look online at something like The Hands Resist Him or The Anguished Man, which I really don't like. It really scares me. and now afraid that I've jinxed myself, but I haven't because I'm powerful. Um, I can't be held responsible for what happens if you go and look at those paintings. You might get creeped out. But suppose there's some truth in all of this, as there is in everything. Suppose we can change the world by creating media, by making something unique for each step of the process of transformation of our reality, an art bomb designed to damage that reality itself and generate dreams where we can live our lives, a preferred version of our lives, a version of our lives we like the idea of better. I hear say laughing at me, ha, I hear crow-violet, you are an odd one. Well, yeah, it's true, but what's what's Bowie? What's Dietrich? They created concepts by those individual artists designed to enchant the eye and the heart particularly, and create what I would call spirit realms in which those who are truly favoured can live out a favoured life. And of course, that's really dangerous. How many stars got eaten by their own legend? The second they stopped to look around and take a moment, the second they stopped feeding Ouroboros media, look at what happens. Look at Elvis. The example that everyone cites, obviously, it's a bit of a cliche, but that's the point, isn't it? He's lost in this world of televisions, unable to be anything else but a king. And even those who succeeded at this game, like Bowie, they lost something along the way. There's all the stories about Bowie feeling really sad because a passerby in New York was surprised that he was taking his own son to the playground. And someone once joked, can you really imagine Bowie making dinner of an evening back in the day? I'm not sure I can. I'm presuming he did. One would hope. I've got a lot of thoughts on this, surprisingly. What about ghost stories? Not the formal, written kind, but the playground, back of the classroom, whispered ghost stories that I've talked about before. The ones that no one made up, the ones that just arrived. Gathering pieces of themselves from the world like a collage. Collective art speaking to our fears and our dreams. And isn't that the joy of ghosts? They terrify us sometimes with existence. That's sticking the finger up to authority of any kind. Ghosts don't follow rules, no matter what books say. The kind of ghosts passed on by stories, they make it all up as they go along. Art making reality. Because if there's a kid too scared to leave the classroom because of the lady in blue, what's that if not controlling reality? Rewriting reality. Stories of the lady, various versions of it, are common. The lady, um, in lots of versions, worked at the school, whatever school you happen to be at. And one day she climbed up the clock tower, trigger warning, self-harm slash suicide. I'll give you a moment. And yeah, she committed suicide. She threw herself off the clock tower in the story. And her ghost still haunts the school, especially at night, especially for the unwary child that stays late. Or perhaps has a detention. Maybe there's a hint of punishment there for transgression as well. I don't know. 
Interesting, this story only applies to schools with clock towers. And hence, it tends to be often primary schools which have got their original buildings and not the sort of newer build comprehensive ones you often find. I haven't done any exhaustive research on that, surprisingly. But I'm interested to note what I've found. There don't seem to be any variations on the theme from schools that lack the clock tower. They've got different stories, very different ones. And maybe there's something in the clock imagery, the high place that speaks to our minds on the subject of mortality and grief. Or possibly clock towers are spooky as anything and we like making each other really scared. Let me move on for a moment. I want to think about TV for a minute. And for this week's TV, I'm going to look at a particularly nasty piece of media in its way. Which I first saw when I was nine years old. And it's one that involves objects and stories, representations. Kind of ties into what I'm talking about here. I am going to take you as the train turns its next corner, to the world of drama-rama. And in specifically, in specifically, specifically, a particular episode called In a Dark, Dark Box. Now, drama-rama ran throughout the 1980s. It was a series of one-off, about 25-minute plays for children on a variety of themes. And the most common one by far was that of the supernatural. This entire first series from 83 is devoted to supernatural stories. So it had lots of ghost stories. Um, lots of really strange ones that border on the avant-garde. And that's terrifying enough for young people. Secretly, I hate to let you in on this, but young people tend to be the most conservative cohort in society. And yet, you've got Alan Garner writing for Drama Armour at this time. That almost rhymes. And I wish I'd thought about it before I said it out loud, but it's too late now. It can't be unsaid. Anyway, In a Dark, Dark Box is a story that gets right under the skin and it plays around with every childhood fear, I think. So it's written by Jane Holloway. And it's the story of an orphaned boy in his grandmother's house, in the woods, far from anywhere. Kind of Edwardian times, I think. And it's also far from anything particularly recognisable to its audience, except maybe maybe that child's grief might be recognisable to some of the audience. Anyway, being the kind of grandmother that clearly enjoys ruining children's evenings in the best possible way, this grandmother recites that poem. Now oh, you know the poem. In a dark, dark wood, there was a dark, dark house. In a dark, dark house, there was... Right, you have to remember it for yourself. I'm not your gran. Go and find it for yourselves. Anyway, she recites the fullness of that poem. There was a dark, dark box. I'll stop. And, yeah, the poem kind of follows him. The media, such as it is, of the poem follows the child. It recites itself in his mind over and over again. In his heart, it gets into him and it alters him. And, oh. There's a sailor doll, an image in itself, a representation of a ton of ideas. And there's also like, there's grief and terror. Oh, I was nine. I was so afraid of this. And yeah, there's the sun, there's the sun rising by the end of it. The thing that reminds us that all sadnesses have to pass eventually one way or another. But that shadow remains still slightly malevolent presence. The thing you can't quite get rid of, no matter how much you think you want to. You can probably find it very easily. I suggest you do. Now, quite a few of our upcoming episodes will be about media and the power of it. Others 
will be about Laurel and Hardy. This is just something you're going to have to live with, I'm afraid. If you've liked this slight change in direction, there will soon be some articles in rather more esoteric vein, I would warn you, on the absolutely brilliant site, The Occult Living Room. They're written by some woman who apparently shares my last name, imagine. And she is only a very tiny part of a huge and awesomely spooky collective of strangeness and magic, which I absolutely recommend. I hope you enjoyed our new ghost train. Looking around, she's been through some stuff. But she's got a new coat of paint. The ultraviolet tubes have been replaced, I suppose. So until the next time that the sun goes down and unexpectedly you find yourself once again walking home through the fairground. I'll say good night and watch out for what you hear. It's fine when it gets into your head, but it's when it gets out again that you have an interesting situation on your sweet hands. Until next time, darlings. Find us on Twitter, CrowViolence, or at CrowViolet.com. Enjoy. <laughs>